0: Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us this week. i uh, got a lot to talk about, as uh, usual, but really a lot this week. There's, uh, uh, there's a change coming to the sacrament of confession. I'm going to tell you what you need to know about that. going to look at uh, five excuses that Catholics give for not evangelizing, and also going to look at five verses from Scripture that uh, can help you find joy and the peace of Christ in our admittedly dire circumstances. And we're also going to ask the question, do I really trust in God? Do you really trust in God? We're going to look at that. But uh, to begin, as always, going to look at the readings from the Sunday that began this week, which was, I guess it was the 22nd Sunday in Ordinary Time in the Ordinary Form, but it's the 13th Sunday after Pentecost in the Extraordinary Form. And I know that we've gone through the Extraordinary Form Lectionary probably a couple of times now on this program, so I've been focusing more on the Ordinary Form. But this week, I think the uh, Extraordinary Form readings were particularly pertinent to kind of what's been going on uh, in uh, church and the world, and so I wanted to go that way. And since it's my show, that's what I'm going to do. So beginning with um, the epistle for the 13th Sunday after Pentecost, it's taken from Galatians 3, verses 16 through 22. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his descendant. It does not say, and to your descendants, as referring to many, but it says, and to your descendant, that is, to one person, who is Christ. This is what I am saying. The law, which came 430 years later, cannot invalidate a covenant that had been previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. Obviously, if the inheritance comes from the law, it no longer comes from the promise. However, God bestowed it on Abraham through a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the descendant appeared to whom the promise had been made, and it was promulgated by angels through an intermediary. Now, an intermediary is not necessary when there's only one party, and God is one. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. If the law that had been given had the power to bestow life, then righteousness would have come through the law. But according to scripture, all things have been confined under sin, so that through faith in Jesus Christ, what was promised might be given to those who believe. Now that is really packed. So let's take a moment and, and unpack it, shall we? St. Paul's trying to show the Galatians that they uh, could not be justified by the Mosaic Law, so again you have that that situation of uh, these Jewish converts to Christianity wanting to you know hang on to the uh, <clears throat> to the customs and and uh, you know practices of, of Judaism, uh, but he says you know you can't be justified by the by the law, but only by an active faith in Christ Jesus. The promise he says which God gave to Abraham that all the nations would be saved through faith in his descendant, singular, pointed to Christ. So even the scripture tells us that, you know, notwithstanding the law and, and the sacrifices and the temple, all that, the Jews remained sinners. The law by itself could not justify men. So it follows, therefore, that salvation was to be gained only through Jesus, who delivered men from the Jewish law. Now, God kept his promise to Abraham. You know, that promise that was confirmed then to uh, uh, with Isaac and, and then Jacob, lastly. And then after 400 years uh, in Egypt, the law came through a mediator, through Moses, because of the people's sins. It was because of their transgressions they were given the law. But the law didn't revoke the promise. I mean, and although thousands of years passed before it was fulfilled, because of Abraham's faith, God blessed the world through him by sending the Messiah as one of Abraham's descendants. So we can see that, you know, circumstances might change, but God remains the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He promised us a Savior, and he promised to forgive our sins through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we can be sure that he will do so because he does not break his promises. And so the Messiah came, and we now have Access. We've been redeemed and we have access to uh, salvation. So now the gospel for the 13th Sunday after Pentecost, it's from Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. As he continued on his journey to Jerusalem, he traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. When he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Standing some distance away, they called out to him, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he realized that he had been cured, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He prostrated himself at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. This man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten made clean? Where are the other nine? Has no one except this foreigner returned to give thanks to God? Then he said to him, Stand up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, the Jewish law divided leprosy into three kinds. It's the leprosy of the flesh, leprosy of garments, and leprosy of houses. So according to the scriptures, your your flesh, your clothes, and your dwelling, these are all points of contagion for leprosy, or what today we call it Hansen's disease. Uh, So according to the fathers of the church, though, in a spiritual sense, uh, the spiritual sense of this passage, the leprosy represents various kinds of sin, beginning with the sin of impurity and related to it. So as as leprosy is contagious, the the leprosy of the flesh represents the impure, uh, those who easily corrupt others via the sins of the flesh. Uh, The leprosy of garments would represent luxury, especially the luxury of dress, scandalous fashions, that kind of things. By which uh, Father Goffin, in his traditional commentary, he says, not only are souls seduced into sin, but many families and communities are brought to poverty and plunged into eternal ruin. Such are the effects of the spiritual leprosy of extravagance. Okay, by which people, um, you know, can lose both their savings as well as their salvation. Okay, so uh, keeping up with the Kardashians, call your office, right? Uh, And then the leprosy of houses. And this is likened spiritually to uh, various places where, well, again, according to Father Goffin, quote, immodest dances and plays occur where licentious acts are committed, where meetings are allowed and encouraged to the injury of virtue and of our neighbor's honor where assistance or advice is given in wicked undertakings of any sort. So, and that's why in the act of contrition, we make the firm purpose of amendment not only to to sin no more, but also to avoid the unnecessary occasions of sin, those people, places, and things from which we may contract this spiritual leprosy. All right. Uh, scripture also mentions that the lepers stood uh, some distance away or they stood afar off. I think is how the Dewey says it. And that's because people with, you know, actual leprosy were required to stay away from healthy people. And and they had to warn them of their impre- you know, their presence if they were coming near, they had to to, you know, ring cowbells and use ratchets and use other kind of noisemakers to let people know they were coming. And and spiritually, we learn from this that that you know that, that, them keeping their distance that that scandalous uh, company and places need to be avoided quite literally like the plague, uh, you know and and today that would also apply I think to scandalous media and social media, it's like it says in in Sirach chapter three verse one, uh, whoever touches pitch, will have blackened hands, and anyone who associates with a proud man will become like him. Right, so it's a, uh, it's about knowing whom to avoid. I think it's what Thomas Aquinas said, knowing whom to avoid is one of the best ways to save your soul. All right. So Jesus sent the, the 10 lepers to present themselves to the priest. Now, this is according to the, the Jewish law in Leviticus 14. Uh, if a leper believed that he'd been cured, if his leprosy had gone away, he had to present himself to a priest and be examined, and then be declared clean before he could re-enter society. That is, you know, to to go to the marketplace, or to worship at the temple, and so forth. Uh, And Jesus sent the ten lepers to the priest before they were healed. And they went. I mean, that's the important point here, that they responded in faith. And Jesus healed them while they were on the way. But the the other point here is that, you know, I mean, our, our trust in God should be so strong that we would act on what he says even before we see the evidence of it, right? That's why St. Augustine said that you do not strive to understand in order to believe, but believe that you may understand. And Jesus healed all 10 lepers, but only one came back to thank him. So it's possible to receive God's grace. He's this this wonderful gift that he has, uh, that he's given us with an ungrateful spirit. Nine of the 10 did that. Only the thankful man, however, learned how his faith played a role in his healing. And it, was likewise, uh, it is likewise that only grateful Christians grow in understanding of God's grace. You know, Jesus used this opportunity to teach us that God is pleased when we thank him, but he's displeased uh, by ingratitude. You know, Jesus generally submitted to insults and injury in silence, but he didn't let this ingratitude pass uncondemned precisely because God is displeased by ingratitude. And I suspect that it is that same uh, ingratitude that he knew men would show uh, toward his uh, um, sacrifice on Calvary that caused Jesus to sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, so great a sin is it that uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and you know we weren't going to get through a program without mentioning St. Bernard, uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux says, Ingratitude is an enemy of the soul that destroys merit, corrupts virtue, and prevents grace. It is a scorching wind that dries up the fountain of the goodness and the mercy of God. That's pretty strong, and that's why uh, St. Augustine says that we cannot speak, write, or think anything better or more acceptable than thanks be to God. That's no nonsense, and we'll be right back with lots more. Right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio after these messages. Welcome back, round two, here on No Nonsense Catholic, Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you with us. There are changes coming to a confessional year near you. Changes in the. uh, And the rite of confession, as you know, uh, 10 years ago or thereabouts, we received the corrected English translation of the Novus Ordo Ordo Missal. But uh, the translational corrections continue, uh, and they're they're working on the English translations uh, in regard to all of the Novus Ordo sacramental rites so that they will conform more closely to the Latin original, which is actually uh, doing the work of the angels. That's a good uh, project. And uh, currently, the formula for sacramental absolution in the English translation is as follows. God, the Father of mercies, through the death and resurrection of his Son, has reconciled the world to himself and sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. Through the ministry of the Church, may God give you pardon and peace, And I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He makes the sign of the cross when he uh, says the name of the Trinity. Now, probably sometime next year, it'll be official that they're uh, going to change that formula uh, slightly. The, The words sent the Holy Spirit will be replaced with poured out the Holy Spirit. And may God give you pardon and peace will be changed to may God grant you pardon and peace. And again, these these changes are not arbitrary. They're just being made to to bring the English translation into closer conformity with the Latin original. Um, you know, so it's not by any means a new prayer. Now, the comment that I have to give on this, I said that that the confession is changing and, and I'm gonna tell you what you need to know. Um, what you need to know about this is that um Even if the priest were to continue to say sent and give instead of pour it out and grant um, after the new translation comes into effect. I mean, it's not that it isn't official yet, but sometime in 2023. The thing is, even if they continue to use the old formula, your absolution is still going to be valid. All right. Because the essential words of sacramental absolution are I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and those remain unchanged. Now, that said, it's important to remember that the essential words are necessary for valid absolution. So if you've ever heard a priest say, uh, I absolve you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit without mentioning your sins, or I absolve you from your sin, singular, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, or God absolves you from your sins in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, or, or you know, likewise fails to say the essential words of absolution, that confession is not valid. You know, uh, the sacraments require matter and form. And that uh, formula of absolution is the proper form. So you, you need to be aware because this is one of those really few uh, uh, rites where the priest typically is not reading from a liturgical book because they, you know, you hear confessions uh, so often that you would have that formula memorized. And so, you know, slip of the tongue is, is uh, certainly, you know, to give the to absolute benefit of the doubt, slip of the tongue is something that's uh, possible here. So, um, yeah, so just uh, be aware of that. But like I say, if uh, as long as those words of absolution, those essential words are being said, even if somebody should mess up on the new translation of the rest of the prayer, uh, it's still going to be valid. Okay, I was talking to Terry Barber the other day, and we were talking about um, evangelization, right? Something we're both very much uh, concerned with. been working on it uh, together for a combined, I guess, 65 years, if you, you, know, you put it all together between us. Um, and uh, so many Catholics today, I, you know, probably, uh, I mean, for Terry, probably a day doesn't go by when somebody doesn't uh, say to him, you know, I, I, uh, I just don't feel like I can evangelize anymore. And they will cite the, you know, I mean, the, uh, the hostility of the culture, or, you know, the, the confusing things that are coming out of, you know, Rome. It seems like every day, uh, and other, you know, scandals in the church or in the clergy or whatever. And um, uh, I was had that in mind. I Was thinking about it, and I ran into an article yesterday um, from CatholicMissionaryDisciples dot com called. Five Reasons Why Catholics Don't Evangelize. And it was written by uh, a gentleman named Marcel Lejeune. And I'm not going to go into it. You know, if you, it's, it's on the catholicmissionarydisciples.com website, Five Reasons Why Catholics Don't Evangelize. And you can read it for yourself. I, it's, I think it's a lot of what he says is is pretty valid and pertinent. I don't know that I, you know, necessarily agree with every single word of it, but, you know, it's it's worth your time to peruse. But I was really struck by his reason number four. And reason number four, he says, Catholics are just too scared to evangelize, and that's why they make excuses why they shouldn't do it and why they refuse to leave their comfort zone. And then he breaks it down into these sub excuses that come into that heading. And it's funny because every single, you know, I mean, none of these excuses are new. And as he points out, Moses tried them all with God in Exodus chapters three and four. You know, and precisely for the same reason, because he was scared to respond to this call from God to go and challenge Pharaoh, you know, let my people go. So excuse number one, I'm not worthy. Uh, And that's exactly what Moses, he says in Exodus 3.11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? But God answers, I will be with you. All right, so why worry? God's on your side, as it says, if, if God is with us, who can be against us? Excuse number two, I don't know enough. And I know a lot of people feel this way. They, they feel like, oh, I'm going to engage somebody and then I'm, they're going to stump me and I'm going to look like uh, silly or, or whatever. But And, and, and it's, again, it's uh, Moses says to God, but what, what shall I say to them? Right? I don't know what to say. I don't know enough. And God answers, I'll be with you. Right? Again, um, say this to the people of Israel— I am has sent me to you. Okay. Well, like the Blues Brothers, you know, I'm on a mission from God. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, or like Jesus said to the apostles, more seriously, when the time comes, the Holy Spirit will teach you what you are to say. In other words, don't worry about um, not knowing everything. Just share what you know. Excuse number three, they won't listen to me. As per I mean that's almost word for word. what Moses said to God, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. But God answers by promising to provide miraculous uh, acts to convince, uh, you know, people who are doubting. Remember all the business with the staff turning into a serpent and so forth. Uh, Maybe they wouldn't listen. But Jesus tells us in the parable of the sower to be content just to plant the seeds, right? Maybe they won't listen. But God does have a, a way of sending signal graces into people's lives, Once they, you know, once that seed has been planted, signs for them. All right. uh, Excuse number four, I'm not talented enough. I'm, I'm not gifted enough. This is not, this is not my thing. And it's again, that's Moses. Lord, I'm not eloquent. I have never been so in the past, nor now that you've begun to speak to me, your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. But the Lord said to him, who has made man with a mouth? Who can make him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will be with your mouth and supervise what you are to say. Ties into the last one, but it's, you know, a a reminder that it's not about our gifts and talents. It's about just sharing the truth. Um, As, you know, people said in various contexts, it's like, you know, it's like a a line, just let it out of the cage. You know, we're we're sharing. It's it's not something awful. It's good news, and, and we should be willing to share it. Uh, and excuse number five is, very simply, I don't want to. That's what it boiled down to. Moses ran through all of his excuses, and finally he just says, forgive me, Lord, but just send somebody else. Uh, but God answers angrily. You will speak to Aaron and place the words he is to say in his mouth, and I'll be with you and with him while you speak, and I will tell you what you are to do. In other words, you need to get over the excuses and just do what's necessary do what you can do because we are all of us called to share the gospel to always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for your hope and and that's what you know Terry and I were talking about that uh, it's precisely in hard times that we remember that the gospel really is good news you know, hard times are, are not an excuse not to share your faith. There is certainly no excuse to, to, to lose your peace or your joy in God. And, and um, I was reminded of an article I saw a couple of years ago uh, during the COVID hysteria. That was called Five Bible Verses to Help You Find Joy. It was by a, a fellow named Rick Hamlin. So I, I dug around and, and uh, dusted it off. And of course, thanks be to God, the lockdowns uh, are you know, mostly over by now. And of course, I don't need to go into all the problems in, in the church and the world right now either. Uh, if you listen to this show, chances are you're listening to the Terry and Jesse show, and they do a very good job of rehearsing of all the issues and the challenges that we're facing. You know, I'm sure that you're more than well aware of the various scandals and, and challenges that are being reported there and elsewhere. But these five verses, and they all come from the book of Philippians, they, they resonated with me at the time. And, and I was looking back, and you know what? I had, it's That's the way it is with Scripture. It, it always seems to adapt itself to your current circumstances, and I thought these things resonate with me as much now as they did then. So I wanted to share them with you anyway, and, and in hopes that uh, you may get something out of it. First off, just for a little context, uh, St. Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians back in 61 AD while he was uh, in prison in Rome. He and his companions had founded the church at Philippi on his second missionary journey, Uh, which you read about in Acts chapter 16. And the community in Philippi was the first Christian church established in what is now Europe, on the European continent. And that alone, I think, makes this important, uh, makes this letter important uh, in our day, when, uh, you know, so much of the world's ills are being blamed precisely on the, you know, the culture, the the European Christian culture uh, of, you know, those days and, you know, their descendants up until now. And, you know, Paul was writing to thank these original European Christians for their generosity and and to encourage them in their faith. And there's, you know, a variety of themes in his letter. uh, Gratitude, humility, self-sacrifice, unity in the church, that kind of thing. But especially for our purposes, joy. Oh, pardon me. The truth that believers may experience profound peace and joy regardless of their circumstances because peace comes not from the world, but from Christ. So Catholic Christians, and that's that's you and me, can experience joy even with everything that's going on right now, uh, because our joy doesn't depend on outward circumstances, but from inward strength. And that's namely you know Christ within us. And so I just want to look at these, you know, few verses from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians that seem especially relevant to the current situation. And the first one is Philippians 4, verse 4. You've heard it a thousand times. You're going to hear it one more. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. When you remember that St. Paul was in prison when he wrote this, deprived of his personal freedom, he gives those words a special power, certainly during the, the days of the COVID lockdown, and also in our current situation, that Paul's attitude is really an important example for us to follow, that, you know, our inner attitude need not reflect our outward circumstances. And once you let that sink in, and uh, we're going to take a short break here, a short pause for the cause, and then we'll be back with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic, right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Okay, welcome back. We were talking about uh, five verses to help you find joy even uh, in difficult circumstances from uh, St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we were saying that Paul was full of joy even though he was in prison when he wrote this letter, uh, you know, even though he was deprived of his personal freedom. And the reason is that he understood that no matter what happened, Christ was with him. You know, Paul urges the Philippians to be joyful, you know, several times in this letter. And I suspect it was something they needed to hear, uh, just like you and I do today. And if you're not feeling joyful lately, you know, it may be that, uh, you know, we're not looking at things in the right perspective. And what is the right perspective? Well, that, of course, ultimate joy comes from Christ dwelling within us. And that we'll experience this joy in its fullness only when we see Christ face to face. So rejoice always, that's first. Next is Philippians 1, 3, and 4. I thank God for you every time I think of you, and every time I pray for you, I pray with joy. So this is is actually the first time he uses the word joy in the letter. And when he prayed for the Philippians, Paul remembered them with joy. So there's a couple of things to take away from this. Uh, First, you know, what does Paul do when he gets stuck? He prays. He prays for others. He prays with joy. You know, it was the kindness of the Philippian church, I suppose, that that caused Paul to remember them with joy and thanksgiving when he prayed for them. Because when they helped St. Paul, they were helping the church. They were helping the cause of the gospel. He was thankful because they were uh, happy to be used for God's purpose. And I wonder, uh, when people think about you and me, what comes to their mind? You know, do people think of me with joy? Have they been lifted up uh, by my acts of kindness, by my you know, apost- apostolic work, by you know, my work in ministry of this last 20, 25 years? Do people think of me with joy? You know, that's food for thought. Um, Next up is a famous passage uh, of praise from St. Paul. This is Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have among yourselves the same attitude that is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Coming in human likeness and found in human appearance, he humbled himself, being obedient to death even death on a cross because of this god greatly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name that at the name of jesus every knee should bend of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord amen that verse is or those those verses that passage comprises my favorite new testament canticle from the liturgy of the hours Always makes my heart swell when I pray this canticle, uh, and not the least of course, because in the liturgical book it's arranged uh, in verse form so it's you know it's easy to understand what's being emphasized, and then the words Jesus Christ is Lord is all caps with an exclamation point you know the the emphasis is right there in the text uh you know and canticle of course means song and scripture scholars some of them would maintain that the, these verses um comprise a canticle, a hymn that was actually sung uh, at Holy Mass by the first Christians. You know, although, I mean, that's not to say that Paul, you know, he might be quoting an existing liturgical song, or he may be the composer, right? Maybe they started singing it after he sent this letter, I don't know. But in any event, it, it remains a uh, a liturgical canticle to this day. And it's not an exhaustive theological treatise. You know, it's a song, it follows the the the... Suffering servant prophecy of Isaiah, and it praises the eight key characteristics of our Lord. Number one, that he has always existed from all eternity with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Number two, that he's equal to God because he is God, right? God the Son, second person of the blessed Trinity. Number three, although Christ is God, he became man in order to fulfill the divine plan of salvation for us all. Number four, that Christ didn't just have the appearance of being a man. You know, he truly became a human being to identify with our sins. He became, as Scott Hahn would say, our covenant representative. He paid a debt we didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. Uh, Number five, that he voluntarily laid aside his divine rights and privileges out of love and obedience for the Father. Right? Uh, Right. though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. That is fruit for meditation right there. Uh, Number six, Christ died on the holy cross for our redemption so that we might not have to face eternal death, so that we might be saved. Number seven, God glorified Christ for his obedience. And number eight, God raised Christ to his original position at the Father's right hand, where he will reign forever as king and judge. Now, that's some song. Um, and it's it's no wonder that Paul could sing it from jail with joy. As I've said before, you, you can often say more and in a way that's more comprehensible uh, in a few lines of poetry than you can communicate with, you know, the most comprehensive prose, and when you think about the words of this canticle, how can you do anything but praise Christ, regardless of your circumstances? Uh, next is Philippians 4 uh, 11 through 13. I'm not complaining about having too little. I've learned to be satisfied with whatever I have. I know what it is to be poor or to have plenty, and I have lived under all kinds of conditions. I know what it means to be full or to be hungry, to have too much or too little. Christ gives me strength to face anything. Now, that's from the, the contemporary English version, and I, I, I like the way that he, you know, it's very comprehensible. But that last line would be more familiar to you as, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Now, St. Paul knew how to be content. He knew how to be content regardless of his circumstances because he knew how to draw on Christ for strength and not on himself. Now, the the secret of peace when you're in great need or simply if you don't have what you want is to learn to rely on God's promises and Christ's grace to help you be content. You know, we we pray in the the act of um, hope, O my God, I trust in thee because thou art kind, merciful, and faithful to thy promises. You know, if, if you find yourself always wanting more, if you find yourself thinking, well, I'll, if I can just accomplish this task, if I can finish this project, if I can obtain this possession, then I'll be happy. You know, I mean, if, if that describes your, your way of thinking, you can ask God, you know, to remove that desire and to teach you to be content in, in every circumstance. That's what Jesus was on about when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount that God will supply all your needs. But, you know, in the way that he knows what's best for you. There's an old saying that says, you know, ask for what you want, but be willing to accept whatever God gives you, because it may turn out to be better than what you asked for. So so Paul could be happy because he could see from God's point of view, which is to say he focused on what he should do rather than what, you know, uh, he should have. He had his priorities straight. And and therefore, he could be grateful for everything that God had given him. That is the secret, the great secret of the, one of the great secrets of the spiritual life, the secret of detachment. All the saints have this in common that they could detach themselves from what's not essential, they, so they could concentrate on what is eternal, on the one thing necessary, as our Lord said. It is a a spiritual axiom that the desire for more possessions for creatures and and creature comforts reveals a longing to fill an empty space in your life. And the question is, what am I drawn to when I feel empty inside? How do I find peace and contentment? Because the answer to that is going to lie in my perspective, my priorities, and my source of strength. Am I going to have peace when I accomplish one more task or or you know gain one more possession? Or do I find my peace here and now in Christ? And that's a question that we all have to ask ourselves. And then finally, verse 13, Paul says, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. But but can we? Really? Can we do everything? Can I really do anything I set my mind to? See, I've never failed to attempt something on the basis that I thought I couldn't do it. You know, I mean, that's that's just me. And, you know, that's, I guess, optimism. You know, the power of positive thinking, right? And I believe there's something to be said for that. But, but, but I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here. Rather, he's saying that being united with Christ and receiving his grace is sufficient to do his will and face whatever challenges will arise from, you know, being his follower. And, of course, we primarily receive that grace through the sacraments. And then lastly, Philippians four verse eight finally brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I quoted this a lot when I was doing talks on on Harry Potter and the da Vinci Code and and you know popular culture in general um, I, I I quote it a lot these days in regards to media and, and especially to social media, because of course it remains perennially true that what we put in our minds determines what comes out in our words and actions. Lexirondi lex credendi. And, and if and if your lexirondi is not prayer but watching TV, <laughs> you know, garbage in, garbage out. You look at St. Paul's list of the things that we should think about. Okay, things that are true, honorable, just, pure, gracious, excellent, praiseworthy. Now ask yourself, how well does that describe the content on what you've read so far on the internet today? Or what you watched on TV last night? You know, it goes without saying that we should avoid, you know, things that are obscene or pornographic. But how much good is is the news feed on your smartphone really doing you? You know, you know, it's not just intended to keep you informed, but to keep you scrolling. And they do that by stealing your peace, by keeping you angry or outraged or afraid or, or some combination of all three. That's why it's important to have a routine of prayer, to have, even as a lay person, a rule of life. So, you know, and that's something that we actually have in common with the Middle Ages, uh, where, you know, you begin the day with a morning offering with the with the morning prayers of the Liturgy of the Hours. And then you continue to pray all throughout the day. And not just the rest of the office, but private prayers and devotions as well. So talking about that and and lots more, actually, the attitude of gratitude when we get back with lots more No Nonsense Catholic on Version Most Powerful. Hey, as we close out today, I'm going to talk about uh, the virtue of hope. We're going to talk about um, the attitude of gratitude, about um, how important that is, tying back into the story of the uh, the one leper that came back to thank our Lord. And he came back. You know, it, it points out that he was a Samaritan, and I think maybe there's uh, there's something here that that uh, if the others were not Samaritans, if they were Jews, that maybe you know the our Lord is kind of pointing out, hey, you shouldn't. You know, he came back to give thanks because he didn't expect anything, you know. And sometimes maybe, you know, as, as followers of our Lord, we, we expect things that uh, maybe we're not entitled to. So you have to remember that these, you know, that's all about grace and, and gift and, and not about us pressing our rights with the Almighty. Also, speaking of gratitude, I have to, I have to stop for a minute, and I, I don't do this often enough, and thank the staff at VMPR. Of course, it'd be impossible to do these programs without them. The the, the faithful uh, Richie, our engineer, who's always there, uh, running the shows, uh, you know, rain and shine here uh, at the studio, and and the staff at the office, uh, Trish and Anthony and his um, his kid brother uh, Alex and and all, you know, we we run on a skeleton crew, you know, our fearless leader, of course, Harry Barber, all the hosts and and. Uh, Volunteers and the other gal that works up in the uh, office, and and I'm especially grateful today. First off, this is a, a cup of coffee, and I know that they've got a million things uh, more important things to do. And uh, Anthony was uh, kind enough to you know kind of stop everything because uh, I got in. Right at the under the wire here and and brought down some coffee during the first segment of the program, which, you know, which is why I was able to finish the program. So it's pretty essential. And and I am grateful for for, you know, his humility for being able or being willing to doing to do that uh, on my behalf. Also, Richie pointed out in the last segment that uh, I said that Jesus Christ became uh second person of the blessed Trinity, became a human being. And he suggested that uh, maybe that wasn't the best verbiage. We know that Jesus is true God and true man, but he is, uh, he is a divine being, right? He has two natures, but he's only one person. He's a divine person. So again, thank you uh, for pointing that out. All right. Um, we were talking about God's peace, talking about uh, having joy, even in difficult circumstances. Because, you know, God's peace is different from the world's peace. You know, it's not just absence of conflict. Uh, and it's not to be found in, you know, just in a uh, you know, positive attitude or good feelings or whatever. The peace that Christ gives comes from knowing that God's in control and accepting everything that happens to us as coming from the hand of a loving father. And I mean everything. You know, that's, that's poverty of spirit, that's, you know, that Christ's peace comes from the grace of baptism that made you a child of God and an heir to the kingdom of, of heaven. It gave you a right to heaven. Maintaining that exalted status by remaining in the state of grace, that's the one thing that matters. And that's why I started, you know, I, I, I like to start the day with the Liturgy of the Hours. I like to start with the, those ancient uh, psalms, these, the liturgical hours. Because, you know, what the news feed can wait. The news feed can wait. The good news can't. And, uh, you know, in Scripture, God the Father, uh, Jesus tells us that God the Father will give us everything we need in this world and eternal life in the next, right? So this is what the Beatitudes was all about, Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this is our faith, and this is our hope. Um, and, you know, O oh my God, I believe in thee because thou art truth itself, canst it's neither deceive nor be deceived. O oh my God, I trust in thee because thou art kind, merciful, faithful to thy promises. You know, we pray uh, acts of faith, hope, uh, and love, and contrition, uh, hopefully every day. But, you know, I was asking myself, do, do I really trust in him? You know, we've been, I've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. That's, you know, a place that I often go uh, in Scripture. And, you know, he says, you know, don't be concerned about what you're going to eat, but what you're going to wear, about where you're going to lay your head at night. He, he talks about the the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, how God takes care of them and, and how we're more important that they are. So don't worry, he says. Don't don't say, what are we to eat or what are we to drink or what are we to wear? All these things the pagans seek. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you besides. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Sufficient for a day is its own evil. That's Matthew uh, Chapter six: Do not worry." Uh, as I've pointed out many times, this is the consistent theme throughout the Holy Scriptures. How often does Jesus himself say, "Fear not, do not be anxious, do not be afraid." Now uh, understand that the words "do not be afraid," or their equivalent appears some 365 times in the Bible. And that's once for every day of the year, right? So this is obviously a consistent theme. And I believe that the reason that the inspired word is so constant in teaching us not to worry is on account of the ill effects of worry. Worry is bad for you. It's bad for your health. Uh, It's bad for your productivity. Uh, It can affect your personal relationships and the way that you treat others in a a negative way. And worst of all, it can affect your ability to trust God. And so the question, what about you? Are you experiencing experiencing the ill effects of worry? And maybe I should rephrase that question and and ask instead, how many ill effects of worry are you experiencing? You know, it's natural to be concerned about our circumstances. And especially because of the, you know, ambiguity and confusion and surrounding so many things going on, both in the world and in the church itself. You know, the many restrictions on our personal freedoms that kind of started with the COVID-19 thing, but have really continued throughout uh, uh, Mr. Biden's administration. Uh, But there's a difference between genuine concern and worry because concern encourages and motivates you to action. Whereas worry is, is obstructive, uh, you know, and, and immobilizing. Um, You know, there were times during the, you know, throughout our history when uh, Holy Mass was offered, you know, in secret. When, when you know, like in, or during the lockdown, when, when people couldn't go at all. And, you know, and that was a genuine concern. But it's not, again, it's not something to be worried about. Jesus' answer to worry is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Put God first in your life. Fill your thoughts and your heart and your mind with his desires, his will for your life, which is sanctification. It's right in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Take Christ as your model and imitate him. To love, serve, and obey God in everything. To ask yourself, what's really important? People and possessions and, and pastimes and goals for the future all compete for priority in your life. Even in the best of times, you know, any one of those things could easily kind of nudge God off the, off the throne, off the first place in your life. Unless you're actively choosing to put him first, to constantly seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is, you know, uh, in a word, to grow in holiness. Maybe you're putting kids through college. Maybe you're looking uh, forward to your retirement. Maybe you're going to buy your first house. I don't know exactly what's going on in your life, but I suspect that there are things going on that require planning. And planning for tomorrow can be time well spent. But worrying about tomorrow is time wasted. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. But but planning means thinking about your goals and the steps you need to take, your timing, all that stuff, counting the costs, as our Lord would say, all the while trusting God uh, and and prayerfully seeking his guidance. And, you know, if you do it well, planning is actually an antidote for anxiety. But those who give in to worry, on the other hand, who, who are consumed by fear, they find it harder and harder to trust God. And they allow fretting about their plans to get in their way of their relationship with him. That's why Jesus tells this explicitly. Don't let your worries about tomorrow affect your relationship with God today. Put him first. You know, I I suspect that you know this. (laughs) I suspect uh, also, though, that you may be feeling anxious. Precisely uh, because many of your goals and pastimes and relationships have largely been put on hold, you know, first again, because of COVID, and now because of the economic and and political situation, you know, put on hold uh, indefinitely and against your will, right? Because of these these various lingering effects and the disastrous economy uh, and other factors. And you might even be feeling depressed about it, as well as worried. And I know why. It's because you feel powerless to do anything about it mean, I understand because I've had the same feelings. But it's well to remember, I think, that when Jesus first delivered the Sermon on the Mount, that fully two-thirds of the people in the Roman Empire in which he lived were slaves. It was the unquestioned, uh, considered natural state of things that two-thirds of the population should be deprived of their personal freedom that's just the way it was. Those people had no goals. They had no plans. They didn't have any expectation for a change of circumstances, but that doesn't mean that they didn't experience fear and anxiety and worry and uncertainty. So, you know, what comfort was there for them in these words of Jesus? This two thirds of his potential audience. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single moment to your life? Why are you anxious? Do not worry. Your Heavenly Father cares about you and knows what you need. Therefore, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That is, pursue sanctification, personal holiness, and all these things will be added to you besides. You know, how do you go about seeking the kingdom without your personal freedom? It's a legitimate question. Well, according to Jesus in Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, some translations uh, prefer among you. In her uh, uh, St. Jerome says within you, but the you is plural. Uh, Jesus says God's kingdom isn't something you can see. There's no use saying, you know, look, here it is, or look, there it is. God's kingdom is here with you. So, you know, in context, he's talking about himself. Christ is the kingdom. That's what he's saying. Here I am. Uh, The kingdom is in in your midst. It's dwelling with you. And Christ dwells within us today, spiritually, uh, by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And even physically, when we receive him in Holy Communion. And that's what he was on about when he said, I shall be with you even to the end of the world. Simple truth is this. Worrying doesn't do anybody any good. And even if changing your circumstances is impossible, it's always possible to change yourself and for the better. The will of God for your life is holiness, and that's available to everyone of goodwill regardless of their circumstances. And that's no nonsense. Hey, uh, this month is um, uh, dedicated to Our Lady of Sorrows, also known as uh, Our Lady Queen of Martyrs. Uh, This week we have the Nativity of Mary, and then uh, on the 15th is um, the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrow. So we're going to be talking about that and lots more next week. Next time we get together, I look forward to it. And in the meantime, I want to say thank you so much for your support of Virgin Most Powerful Radio, both spiritual and financial. We can certainly use it. And until next time, thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.